Hello and welcome to Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK-based charity working to help, support and inform people living with pain and healthcare professionals. I'm Paul Evans and this edition has been funded by a grant from Grunenthal. Chronic pain affects almost 100 million European citizens and that includes 50%, half of the older population. It causes 500 million days of illness per year with a cost to the European economy of more than 34 billion euros. In November 2014, the European Pain Federation, EFIC, held its fifth symposium on the societal impact of pain in Brussels with the aim of raising awareness for the impact that pain has on our societies, health and economic systems. Now, those statistics are mind-boggling perhaps too large to comprehend. Put another way, there are 100 million individuals who will have their own personal stories of how pain has impacted on their lives, the paths they have taken or failed to take to receive adequate treatment or support. Lars Müller from Denmark has been a pain patient for 17 years. He's vice president of the Danish Association of Chronic Pain Patients and a member of Pain Denmark. He spoke to Pain Concerns' Rowena Jacobs. When I was a little boy, I was like really like always doing sports and stuff. I couldn't sit still. And when I was around 18 years old, I did a lot of uh, windsurfing and athletics. And one day after jawling and weightlifting, I got like a, I was bicycling up a hill and so, suddenly I felt like this burning pain in my shoulder. So I went to the doctor and checked me out, but he couldn't really find anything. And I kind of learned to, to live with it. I, I, I Actually, I started playing also tennis with the left arm and started riding with the left arm, but then came in the left shoulder. And after two years, I was um, in Australia for, for training windsurfing. And when I came back, I was out doing some tryouts and I did a big loop and when landing it I had the same pain in my forearms so but this time it was just much worse and I couldn't sleep and and at that time also I started on university on sports university and we had to do a lot of physical things there and then after one year my whole life came totally down you know I couldn't even almost walk down the stairs and I was thrown around in the health system and they couldn't really measure or see anything. They found some unspecific things, but couldn't really give me a condition. Now, Lars Müller's story of frustration will be familiar to many of the 100 million Europeans living with chronic pain. Chronic, as opposed to acute pain, is continuous, long-term pain of more than 12 weeks or after a time that healing would have been thought to have taken place after trauma or surgery. Hans Kress is Head of Department of Special Anesthesia and Pain Therapy at the Medical University of Vienna. He's past president of the European Pain Federation. Our problem is that even physicians, even healthcare professionals, even university Teachers in medicine simply think that chronic pain is nothing else but a persistent acute pain due to another chronic disease. And when you have this misunderstanding, when you misinterpret chronic pain as being nothing else but a prolonged acute pain, 
then you will not understand the problems of your patient. You will not understand that treatment is different and finally you will not be able to treat the patient in a proper way because when you have this wrong belief then of course you will accept and you will expect that when the underlying other chronic disease is properly treated the pain will automatically disappear that means when you no longer find the symptoms and the signs of the underlying disease you believe there cannot be any longer any pain and if the patient nevertheless tells you I'm still suffering from chronic pain then many professionals healthcare professionals blame the patient of exaggerating of malingering of being a hypochondric and that is a real problem for the patient who feels not understood who feels really neglected and it is also a problem for our total healthcare system because then such a patient will produce a lot of additional costs not only within the healthcare system but for the whole society because the patient has still pain and because of this pain he will continue to look for a solution to consult other physicians to go to hospital to undergo a lot of unnecessary but very expensive diagnostic or maybe even surgical procedures so one of the problems is to communicate to lay people as well as to healthcare professionals that you cannot see pain pain is not visible you cannot objectively measure pain but nevertheless when the patient tells you I'm still in pain this is a fact I actually ended up with a really bad depression and anxiety attacks and I gave up on the, the, the public system so I went to New York and they gave me some herbs there and I got totally anxiety attack and I was committed to uh, when I came back to psychiatric unit and got uh, electroshock and was there for like half a year and I kept saying them that they have to give me something for my pain but they kept giving me uh, like antidepressants because they said that it was the cause of the depression the pain but I knew because that it was the pain which led into a depression it seemed like they were like blindly trying to find a somatic reason like a physical reason and of course you should always do that but you have to in the meantime start some sort of treatment or guidance of me because I didn't get any help every time I got to a new doctor they were really arrogant because they didn't find anything on me and, and when I tried to tell them to actually I don't care about the diagnosis I just need some help about the pain being able to sleep being able to go to school being able to go shopping and buy groceries but it seemed like they had like blindfolders they just focused on on a diagnosis we have to educate the physicians of the future 
so that they understand the difference between acute and chronic pain. They understand that also the treatment concepts for chronic pain completely differ from acute pain. And of course, we have also to educate our politicians and the decision makers in our health system because the decisions are not made by physicians in our healthcare systems. The decisions are made by regulators, by administrators, by politicians, and they must understand what it means to properly treat chronic pain patients and that it finally will even save resources that can then be used for other things and other purposes. Dr. Hans Kress of the Medical University of Vienna talking to Pain Concerns Rowena Jacobs at the 2014 European Pain Federation Societal Impact of Pain Symposium in Brussels. Professor Justina Morassi is a pain doctor in Italy. I appreciated very much the discussion about uh, education and cultural approach. Those are two completely different things, in my opinion, and I was a little bit impressed that uh, the audience this morning has voted for the most important uh, aspect is education. To me, the most important aspect is culture, because education is just one small part of the culture, nothing else than this. I mean, for example, I make an example that is very, very clear. Till 2000, in Italy, every doctor had received clear education on the effects of opioids, the efficacy, the side effects, etc., etc., etc. But we were still in a moment of our history, like it is for many other countries, where we had this concept of opiophobia deriving from an old, old story that was the war of the opium in China that had confused completely the mentality also of the doctors, putting together the use and the abuse of opioids for addiction and the use of opioids for therapy, which are two different, completely different things. At that time, a doctor in Italy did not have, as it is in many other countries still today, did not have the possibility to prescribe opioids. First of all, we just had morphine, injectable morphine as a drug. And uh, it was almost forbidden. It was used just in very exceptional cases, which was stupid, completely stupid, because we need opioids to care for pain. So you cannot oblige people to prescribe opioids on a triple form with different uh, rules, completely different rules inside of the hospital or outside of the hospital. And at that time, if a doctor was found with a vial of morphine in his bag when he was going to visit the patient at home, he could have been arrested because it was forbidden to carry out the opioids. And this was the consequence of a bad culture. Since then, we have made many, many, many uh, steps forwards. And <laughs> that's why 
we have now a completely different cultural approach. But going back to my previous topic, doctors did not know at that time less on the use of opioids than what we know now. This is education, which is something different. So you can have a good education on the use of drugs, but you have a completely mistaking approach, cultural approach, and so you don't do anything. Italy's Professor Justina Marassi. Now, cultural barriers which stop people who need controlled medicines like morphine for their pain is an area researched by Dr. Willem Scholten and his team. They analysed the legislation and policies of 12 European countries, from the Baltic states in the north to Greece, Turkey and Cyprus in the south. If you have so many barriers, it's like a pipeline, a water pipe, where you have 12 valves or more in it, and the water starts, starts running only after you open the last one. So it's very important to have a good analysis and to take away all these barriers. But the legislation barriers can be that the law says in some countries that uh, patients can get their medicines only for seven days at a time. And when you're chronic pain patients, it's quite a burden to go after a new prescription uh, every seven days. And uh, sometimes it's even worse because you can solve this maybe by having the doctor prescribing multiple uh, prescriptions at a time. But if there's also a limit on the validity of the prescription, then you need to go to both the doctor and the pharmacy uh, every so many days. Other things are legal limits on the dosage and legal limits that are lower than uh, sometimes uh, needed for patients. There are limits on who can prescribe. Uh, pain is almost in any medical specialty, so every medical doctor should be allowed to prescribe. Of course, he should make sure he has the knowledge how to treat pain. But once he is knowledgeable on the topic, he should be able to prescribe. But in many countries, it's only an oncologist or only a GP who is allowed to prescribe, and other doctors are not allowed to do so. These were the legal barriers. But uh, what we experienced also in many countries, the people there told us that the medical education on how to treat pain is limited to just two, three hours. People who get a really good training in pain treatment that are the veterinarians. So our cats and dogs are... <laughs> better treated than we are treated. Another issue is the attitudes. Some people think that they will become dependent immediately when they are treated with morphine for their pain, but actually it's a very low percentage of people that become dependent on these substances. And then we should treat them and help them to get off from the substances. It, it's not the end. Uh, and uh, when you are for prolonged times in serious pain, at that moment the, uh, the symptom to treat and not just don't treat because of a fear for becoming dependent, something that uh, likely will not happen. The Italian initiative is one other sign that uh, pain management is getting more and more importance in, in politics. Also, the World Health Assembly last summer uh, adopted a resolution recognizing that people have a right to health, that's a human right, uh, but that the right to health is served by having good access to pain medicines. And the Italians have been building forth now on that resolution. Also, at the same time, they introduced a law uh, for their own country, but they want to stimulate that other countries also take measures. 
and I think that's a very positive sign. But other countries in Europe uh, will need to pick up uh, because finally it's the country that decides and Italy can tell others, well, you, you need to treat your patients well. Uh, but the countries will need to create the conditions uh, for being able to do so. And of course, being at the human right, it's always that patients can go and file a complaint to a human rights body, either at the national level or an international level. Unfortunately, the large majority of patients just let it go. Dr. Willem Scholten. Neil Betteridge is vice chair of the Chronic Pain Policy Coalition. Now, that's a forum which brings together a wide range of professional bodies, patient organisations, including Pain Concern, parliamentarians and industry representatives in the UK. It works closely with an all-party parliamentary group in Westminster. One of the things which is very important, I think, to get the support of any politician or policymaker is if they listen to you, are they confident that you are representing the whole community or is somebody else from chronic pain going to come along tomorrow with a different agenda? So the more we can reassure them that we are speaking with one voice and that there is a consensus uh, behind what we're saying, then that's the thing which gets you off to a fantastic start. That's a big green light. And therefore, I hope that out of today's event, the, the societal impact of pain meeting here in Brussels, I, I hope that one of the things we drive towards is a, a more focused and, and prioritised agenda with maybe one or two key messages, key requests that we want to take to our policymakers. Because if we're then consistent, same messages, but different messengers, different people doing it, uh, but the same things are being requested at local, national and international level, we're far more likely to be successful and effective. And that's the duty we owe to our patients, I think, to be effective. Personally, and I think to an extent, on, on speaking for the, the coalition, we need to be clear about our evidence base, numbers affected. But there are so many numbers, we need to choose the ones which will have the most positive impact. And as I mentioned on the panel discussion here at the meeting, it's easy to use the big numbers because we want so many people to be aware this is a massive problem. But there is a danger there, there's a risk there, that uh, the numbers might seem so large that surely if everybody is affected it can't be that serious. Or the other danger is if the numbers affected are so big, wow, I'm a politician, I've only got a year left in my post, what can I do? So they don't do anything. So I believe, yes, of course, it's important to articulate the prevalence, just how many people are affected, but then quickly move to more specific groups of patients where there are specific solutions that we can offer. I think we need to get the evidence base right with statistics, but everybody using the same statistics to support the messages. I think we need to develop what we believe best practice looks like, and I'm not speaking just about pain medication there, or that's important, of course. I'm also talking about how structured self-management can be brought into the pathway. Uh, I'm talking about the sort of um, the undergraduate training that's needed. If we can recognise, if we can describe what best practice is, and all of the stakeholders, from patients to clinicians, agree on that, then we've got something to lobby for. And as long as we're taking rational arguments with evidence behind them, then that, I think, is the thing which is going to make us successful. So I think this community itself has got a job to do, because at the moment, I'm not sure whether at the European level 
we could take that sort of consensus to the policymakers. If I'm right in that, we've got some urgent work to do because we might win the support of individual policymakers and then not have the solution to give them, and that would be catastrophic. Neil Betteridge, Vice Chair of the Chronic Pain Policy Coalition in the UK. Healthcare is, of course, devolved to the individual nations within the UK, and in Northern Ireland, the Patient and Client Council provides a powerful, independent voice for patients, clients, carers and communities on health and social care issues. You can hear more about their work in Airing Pain Programme number 43, which you can still download from the Pain Concern website, and that's painconcern.org.uk. Louise Skelly is its Head of Operations. A few years back, a number of patients came to us talking about their experiences of living with chronic pain and also their experiences of the health and social care system in Northern Ireland. And within the Patient Client Council, we linked up then with the Pain Alliance and we recognised that this was a voice that hadn't been heard in the system, uh, very much an invisible voice in the system. And we set about setting up a steering group made up of not only uh, clinicians and people from the Patient Client Council, but also patients. And we set out at the journey of actually going out and finding out what it was that was important to patients across the province. That culminated in the publication of The Painful Truth, which came out early last year. We then issued that quite widely to decision makers across the system. The minister launched it. At his launch, he announced that chronic pain was to be recognised as a condition in Northern Ireland, and that was a fairly major step forward. The Painful Truth made 10 fairly significant recommendations, and as we said at the moment, seven of those have been accepted and some of them partially accepted. So we're still working on a lot of the outcome of the Painful Truth. Louise Skelly, Head of Operations of the Patient and Client Council in Northern Ireland. Dr Pamela Bell is Chair of the Pain Alliance of Northern Ireland. I think this has been a most remarkable survey. I know of no other that's quite like it. First of all, this was a voice from across our population uh, of all of those who suffer from chronic pain, not just focusing on people who attended pain clinics or people with one particular type of pain, but right across the population. And it was very large, and that reflects the enormous PR campaign that there was to raise awareness that the survey was going on, involving quite a large number of patient support groups and charities in focus groups uh, to help to inform uh, the overall structure and style of the report. And it's been just such an unusual and unique report, which has if not exactly opened our eyes to things that are new in terms of the problems that people have when they live with chronic pain, or really showing us particularly where the gaps are in the services for them, but it's just coalesced everything into one major report where we've had both statistical analysis allowing us to present to our population and present to our uh, the members of our legislative assembly, the, if you like, the facts and figures of chronic pain. But I think more importantly, it's what's come out of the qualitative analysis and those patient stories have really made clinicians, carers, politicians sit up and take notice. It's been hard to listen to. Some of the stories are extremely poignant and some of the messages for healthcare professionals are not easy to listen to. 
it would be lovely to say we're doing a really good job. But if we knew we were doing a really good job, there would have been no need to do this survey and to publish this report. So we have to listen to where we're falling down. And part of that is accepting that people have pain. It may not be very easy to diagnose. It may not be very visible, but it is nonetheless real. And it has a very real detrimental effect on their physical, their emotional health and their financial health, too. So I think that by getting those stories out there, there are a lot of people for whom those stories will have resonance. They recognise that they're not alone and hopefully feel not quite so stigmatised. And this is something that we continue to want to do. Uh, we want to continue to engage with a variety of patient groups, but particularly those patient groups where we have identified that perhaps the services that they had are not now currently as good as the services that they used to have because that gives us real power I think to go and say to those who are responsible for commissioning and delivering our services why is this happening and these people have a very real need can you help us to do something about it can we help you to make the services more appropriate to them can we help you and this is particularly the role of the patient and client council to engage with our commissioners and with those who deliver our services to make sure that your voice is heard in all of this. Dr Pamela Bell of the Pain Alliance of Northern Ireland. And you can read more about the Patient and Client Council's work in Northern Ireland at their website, which is Patient Client Council, no gaps there, one word, patientclientcouncil.hscni.net. And HSCNI stands for Health and Social Care Northern Ireland. Before we finish this edition of Airing Pain, I'll just say that whilst we at Pain Concern believe the information and opinions expressed are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Don't forget that you can still download all editions of Airing Pain from painconcern.org.uk or you can get CD copies direct from Pain Concern. The last words from the European Pain Federation's Symposium on the Societal Impact of Pain go to the Federation's President, Dr Chris Wells. He's speaking with Pain Concern's Rowena Jacobs. 20% of the population have pain, and that actually means 100 million people in Europe. Now, they're not all in severe pain, of course not, and they're not all got disability from that pain, but a significant number have got pain and disability and a reduction in quality of life, and they're voters, so they need to vote. And we need to link up throughout Europe with all the different people, lots of patient groups, and, and actually use the patient groups to inform politicians, and in particular to mould policy. For, for instance, we were talking today about the fact that in the UK, if you've got back pain, you're supposed to be seen by a multidisciplinary team within six weeks. And two of the patient groups said, well, we didn't know that. We're from England. We didn't know that. Well, OK, they should know it and they should tell all their people and all their people should explain that this is what should be done. So if you get acute pain, acute back pain in England, you should go to your GP and say, look, this is what's supposed to happen. The GP doesn't know either. So do it. Only 4% of patients attending with pain when they first had their diagnosis got any information. That's awful. It's all there. It's all on the internet. 
So we should make sure that there are good sources on the internet of informed communication. I think EFI could do it, actually do that, and that patient groups can inform each other about this and, and it could be viewed. People have criticised GPs and said, well, these GPs are hopeless. Well, the problem is, it's not the GPs are necessarily hopeless. They don't have great tools because, unfortunately, the non-steroidals and the opioids and the other drugs that we use for pain don't work particularly well. So they know when they've, they've tried one or two simple things on the patient, it's going to be a long and hard road. So, of course, they don't really want to see the pain patient because they don't really know how they can help them. If you come in with a sore throat and a nice suppurating mass in the back of your throat, the GP's delighted. And he'll put you on an antibiotic, and he knows if he sees you again, you'll say, oh, thank you, doctor, you're wonderful. Well, that's great. But when somebody comes in with back pain, oh, it's not quite so easy, is it? And we're going to put you on these drugs, and then come back and say, well, these gave me side effects, and those didn't help. He doesn't really want that hustle. So, we've, you know, we've got, to, we've got to help them. So we've got a difficulty in the UK with what works. We've got a difficulty with access because we do have multidisciplinary teams, physios who are very good. Uh, I work in Bolton amongst, I work in Liverpool, but I work in Bolton also. It's a great team there. They see the patients, they help who they can with physio, with exercise. They refer them to orthopedic specialists if there's any suggestion that surgery or anything else might be required, but they also refer them to the pain clinic. So I actually get patients in Bolton with eight-week and ten-week histories of pain, and those are the ones, if I look at my results, those are the ones that get much, much better results. The ones with a five-year history, my results aren't as good. Early assessment, early management, prevention of chronicity, much better in the future for quality of life. And actually, that saves money. If we can just spend a little or modify the pathways, then we save money in the long term, which is what all politicians have to do.